Well, amen and amen. amen. Praise the Lord for Him giving us mouths and tongues to worship Him. What a blessing to gather together this morning and to worship the, the only one who is worthy of our worship and our praise and our adoration. I am Pastor Jason and, and welcome again to Rancho Baptist Church. Thank you so much for choosing to come and, and worship with us this morning. I too wanted to say j- just a quick word of, of thank you to all of you who helped out with, with VBS and cross training this last week. That is the first time that my family and I have seen VBS and cross training here at, at RBC and it is awesome. It is a well-tuned machine and it, and it, and it, and it's fun. You know, um, I actually helped out in crafts, which probably isn't my forte. And interestingly enough, I asked the kids like the last day, Hey, what was your favorite thing about VBS? And, and you know, a lot of them said that their favorite thing was crafts. That's just cool. And I, I would have said, if I was that, games. And, and let me give a little disclaimer too. For those of you who have kids that are in junior high, and if they all of a sudden on Wednesday wanted a, um, an electric scooter, I'm sorry. It was just an illustration. That I, I wasn't prophesying that all you guys need to buy your kids electric scooters. <laughs> Another thing that I thought was very, very cool about Vacation Bible School, right from the beginning on Monday, when I saw the kids arriving, you could tell some kids, they, they had it down. They knew exactly where to go. They sat down. They, they were already practicing the songs and, and they were gathering together. Then you saw other kids come who didn't really seem to know anyone. And yet, you know what everybody else did? They just latched onto them and, and, and welcomed them in. It, it was such a testimony of, of the kindness and the love of, of Christ and, and the leaders that we have. So, man, I, I'm just so thankful for that. And I, and I believe that, that that even leads into what we're going to see this morning in Acts chapter 10. If you want to turn there. What we are going to see is that Christ desires not just for the nation of Israel, not just for the Samaritans, but He desires for the whole world to be welcomed into His church. That all those that, that by faith, through faith, would trust in Christ are welcome, and the doors should be wide open. And yet you and I recognize at times that the doors aren't always wide open, right? At times, we we tend to be a little selective on on who we mingle with, on who we have fellowship with. And this may be surprising, but even in Papua New Guinea, and in the the church that that is now called the Siawi Bible Church, that the Lord grew in the jungles of Papua New Guinea, we actually had some exclusiveness come into our village as well. At one point, some men came to me and they said, they said, Jason, our wives don't sit under our talk. They're not submissive to us like, like Shannon is for you. And so what we would like you to do is we would like you to teach through Ephesians again so that they get it. And so that they will sit under our talk like your wife does. And I said, okay guys, that sounds great. But before we do that, I would like you to sit under God's talk first again. And I'm going to meet with you guys for three weeks. And I want you guys to commit to coming to this. 
Because each day we're going to build on the next. And I called it the Siafri did you a non a today, which basically is the the siyal we love there, trying to love your wives. And so they came. Over forty men came for twenty one days straight. We started every morning at six o'clock in the morning before I would then teach God's word. And we gather together and and we'd have an awesome time of of challenging each other in the word, testimonies over how the ladies were were being blessed and how the men were being blessed. But on my third day to the village, I passed a man's house and his name is Agwep. And it, and it dawned on me, you know what? I don't see Agwep coming to, to this love dare. I wonder what's up. And so I asked Agwep, I said, hey, how, how come you're not coming? And he said, well, Jason, you know, I, I have more than one wife. And some of the men said that I wasn't welcome to come because I hadn't followed God's plan for marriage. Because I had rebelled and I had taken a second wife. And I said, well, I don't know what they meant, but you need it more than everybody else because you have double the work. (laughs) And honestly, you have double the conflict in your house because when he married his second wife, she was younger and the two of them, just his first wife and his second wife fought all the time. And so I said, no, Agweb, you come. And you know what? He was such a testimony to the rest of the young men. Because it's part of culture, it's part of prestige to get more than one wife in that culture. And these men heard time and time again how difficult it was on Agweb because he had more than one wife. You see, it, 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 it is not Christ's plan, it's not His purpose to allow the church... Right now we have doors closed and that's good. But figuratively speaking, the doors to church should never be closed. The doors should be wide open so that all that, that come by faith would be able to come and we would welcome them. And yet at times, just as they did in Siawi, we close the doors and say, oh no, you can't come. This is a seclusive club and you're not part of our club. You see, and I, and I believe that what we're going to see today is, is a process that that has t- taken some time to get Peter to the point where he is today in Acts chapter 10. If, if you remember the way the church started, it was all Jewish. It was in Jerusalem. And just the idea of the church extending to the Samaritans <coughs> was difficult for the Jewish people to grasp, the Jewish believers. And Christ in His omniscience and planning and and sovereignty and providence, what does he do? He allows the the church in Samaria to to kind of be pressed on pause until what we saw in Acts chapter 8 where Peter and John go to them, right? And when they go to them and they lay hands, then the Holy Spirit comes on. Each one of them. Why? In order to prove to Peter and John, yes, these are indeed believers just like us even though they're Samaritans. And then they then take that talk back to the rest of the church. Why? So that they would welcome them with open arms. But what we're going to see today is entirely different. As difficult and as hard as it would have been for the Jewish people, the Jewish believers, to accept the Samaritans, to accept the Gentiles, was exponentially hard. In fact, it was so hard that they would never even think about it. They live totally separate lives. Do, do you understand that, that in this time when a, 
when a Jewish person would travel to foreign lands and they would set foot on foreign soil and they would walk with their sandals when it came time for them to walk back home and, and it came time to, they would know where that boundary marker is where they would step over back onto Israelite ground, onto Jewish ground in order not to contaminate the Jewish ground and in order to not stay unclean, in order to purify themselves. Do you know what they would do? They'd literally take off their shoes and they'd clap them to get all the dust off of them. Why? Because they didn't want that to desecrate their holy land, to desecrate themselves. That was just one of the things that they did in order to separate themselves from the Gentiles. Now, even in the cities where they both lived together, the Jewish people would live in a certain sect, a certain area, location of the city. But their, their markets were entirely different. A Jewish person would not go to a Gentile market. They wouldn't go to a Gentile butcher. They had different butchers, different markets. There was, in essence, a great big wall of divide that was created between the Jewish nation and the Gentile nations. And that wall was not something that would ever come down in their minds. And, that, and yet, do you know what Jesus does do you know who jesus gets to do this he 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 gets peter and he wants peter to go and he wants to break down that wall he wants to open the doors to his church wide unlike any other time in the history of the nation of israel something is changing and he calls peter to do this peter who is still wrapping his his mind around the fact that the samaritans are now part of christ's church And we see change going on on Peter, as we saw last week in the last verse of chapter 9, where he was staying in Joppa with a tanner. That isn't normal. He wouldn't normally do that. Normally that would make him unclean. So we see change happening, but Peter needs to change more. And that's where these two visions come in. These two extraordinary visions which are so much more than visions and they're not just about food. What we are going to see, it is about people. And it's about the door opening wide so that all by faith could come in. So turn with me to Acts chapter 10, verses 1 to 16. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and alms have, have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. On the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. 
But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for Your Word, for writing down Your truth, the pages of Scripture. We pray now that You would expand our understanding of who You are and how great Your love is for the whole world that we might follow in Peter's footsteps, in Cornelius' footsteps, and seek to serve you and to love others the way that you would have us to. So speak to us now through your holy and inspired word, for it's in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's clear in these verses that what we are going to see is we're going to see the love of God, the love of Jesus Christ on display. And that that love is is not contained or confined just to the nation of Israel. That love extends the borders of the nation of Israel. That it reaches out to the tribes, to the nations, to the tongues of the foreigners. And that He has created a people that includes everyone. And that His church, the doors are to be wide open. But although this, this love that Christ has for all people is clear and it's evident, there are some things that, that the Lord has for us in these visions and what we are going to see today as well. And namely, what we are going to see are we gonna, we're gonna see lessons learned from these two men. From, from these two, what you and I would call leaders. Leaders, and yet we are going to see that that they are full of imperfections. They are full of even wrong perceptions and wrong understandings. And in some cases, they still don't know everything. And that should be an encouragement to you and I. And what we are going to see first, the lesson that the Lord would have for us is this. Well, okay. (laughs) We are going to see godliness without Christ is not enough. And for all the wonderful things that we will see about Cornelius, what we do not see is the most important. And that is salvation in Christ. He is not a believer and that becomes clear. Look at verses 1 and 2. Chapter 10. Now there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. A devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. I believe as you and I look at this man Cornelius, we should be challenged by his life as we see that he is a man that we should admire. 
And we, share, and we see two different perspectives on why he is such a remarkable man. First, we see it in, in the way that, that he is presented in society. That socially, he, he's kind of elite. We, we see this first in where he is located. Where he is living. Where he is doing his job. And just to have his family with him elevates him even more. Because generally, you wouldn't have your family with you wherever you served. But Cornelius does. And we see that he is situated in this city called Caesarea. Caesarea was the Roman provincial capital at this time. This is where all of the Roman governors lived. So anybody that was anyone lived here. This is where all the decisions were made. This is where the entire nation, the entire Roman empire was directed from. Right here in Caesarea. And this is where he lives. In Caesarea, they, they had an amphitheater where they had gladiators competing. They, they had a, a, a hippodrome where, where you could see chariots racing. They had a temple dedicated to Caesar. This was a hub. And, and yet we see that, that his job was also important. For he is a centurion, meaning that, that he was in charge of 100 soldiers below him. That he was the authority over them. And it wasn't just any group of a hundred men. It was the Italian cohort, which many believe was, was the cream of the crop of soldiers. That these men were hand selected because they were so gallant and full of valor. And yet even in this, we, we see some, some pointing back to, to Jesus' life. Because this isn't the normal man that you would think the Lord is going to use in order to open his Church doors wide. You would think he was gonna, gonna use a Jew, but instead he uses this man, a centurion. And yet, do you remember Matthew chapter 8 with Jesus Christ and a centurion that comes to Christ? And the centurion comes to Christ and he says, and he, and he says, Jesus, please, will you heal my servant? For my servant is, is at home, he's in pain and he's paralyzed. And Jesus says, oh, okay, yes, I'll go with you. And, and, and this centurion says, no, don't come with me. Why? Because I'm not worthy of having you in my home. But I'm a man of authority and I understand authority. For I have men that serve under me and I tell them what to do and they do it. And I understand that you are a man with authority. So if you just say the word, I know it'll get done. So you say that he's healed and he will be healed. And what happens? Jesus says, okay. Your faith has healed this man. But he's not done teaching, right? What does he do after that? Even more remarkably, Jesus stops and he talks to the crowd. All these Jews. And in Matthew 8.10, he says this, I tell you the truth, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith as this man. He holds this man up on a pedestal and says, listen, all of you should be the ones that have great faith. Why? Because... You have this wonderful history of our God, Yahweh, looking after you. But you know what? Nobody's faith compares with this man, this centurion. This is amazing. This is remarkable. And yet we're now introduced to another centurion who I believe is made of the same fiber. He's made of the same mold as as this other centurion. And yet it's not just on the aspect of, of that he's socially elite. There's an aspect of well that makes him so admirable in his spiritual makeup. As, as we see four descriptions that you and I, if we could follow these, I, I, 
I think we would be pretty happy. Think about whether or not you measure up to this man's devotion. As first we see him characterized as being devout. What does that mean? That means he had a heart for God. A heart for Yahweh where he was seeking to please Him. And yet in the Greek there's this idea that something is still missing. He's seeking the Lord, but he recognizes that a piece of the puzzle is missing. And then we see that he fears God. This means that he has a a respect and honor and awe of God. And yet we see that it's more than, than just himself having this fear. That he actually passes this fear down to who? His family. That not only does he fear God, but he's teaching his family to fear Yahweh as well. And I believe we'll see from, from these passages of Scripture that he didn't just stop there with his family. He taught his servants how to fear the Lord. He taught the soldiers under him how to fear the Lord. And it doesn't end there with just some sort of spiritual thing. <laughs> what, what does it say next? He gives alms. He, he's the guy that every Sunday was giving an offering, not thinking about what it cost him. Not, not only was he very devout and fearful of God and, and had this respect for God, but he had a respect and he had a love and he had an admiration for who? For the Jewish people themselves. And then finally, the, the last thing, and as if these other three aren't enough, he, he's a man who prays and, and it says he prays continually. And how many of us could measure up to this list? And have it written in Scripture to where it's true. Probably not many. And yet for all the things that he had going, that he had walking towards the Lord, there's one great big thing missing. And that is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't see this here. We won't see this until later when Peter comes. And he trusts in the Lord. What, what is going on? Well, the Lord is preparing him. But think too about this. Why Cornelius? I believe it's to, it's to teach Peter a lesson. A lesson in humility. And I believe that lesson can be, can be taught to you and I as well. For, for even an unsaved man is used by the Lord to teach Peter something so great as opening up Christ's church to everyone. Perhaps you and I are in situations where, where our neighbors or, or those that, that we work with who aren't saved, actually the Lord wants to teach us things through them. For indeed, that is what the Lord does here through Cornelius and Peter. That is what we are going to see. The Lord wants to use all the people in our lives, not just believers. God isn't limited. He wants us to learn how to respond the way that honors Him. In all situations in our lives. And yet we must understand too. That, that there is a catch. That, that it's not just a given that Peter's going to understand this. That Peter's going to grab this. Peter has to be what? He has to be teachable. He has to be willing. He, he has to be moldable. He has to be willing to take correction. To even take this lesson from who? From this centurion. That normally Peter wouldn't even spend any time with. He'd probably be scared of him. And he'd be separating himself from. But instead the Lord is going to use the centurion in Peter's life. So having, having given the background of this man Cornelius, let's see what happens next. As we know that the Lord appears to him with this vision. Look at verses 3 to 6. 
About the ninth hour of the day. Okay, so this is 3 p.m. This is when normal Jews would be going to the temple to pray. Remember, Cornelius is not a Jew. He's not even a proselyte Jew. He hasn't been circumcised. And so instead of going to the temple to pray, he was probably going to pray in his home. And yet what happens? He saw clearly in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. It seems that he doesn't even know who Peter is. He is staying with a tanner named Simon whose house is by the sea. I believe this whole account sounds vaguely familiar. It reminds us, I believe it's supposed to remind us of Acts chapter 9. And Saul on the road to Damascus, where what happens? The Lord appears to him. Here an angel appears to Cornelius. And yet, even in their responses, they're very similar. What does Saul ask? Saul asks, who are you, Lord? Cornelius asks, what? What is it, Lord? And then we see as the response, this angel of the Lord says, your prayers and alms have have ascended as a memorial before God. Isn't that strange? Here's a man that, that is not indeed saved yet, and yet the Lord accepts his worship. That's how gracious our God is. And yet we must too recognize that the Lord is pulling him to himself. The Lord is preparing Cornelius to hear the gospel. And we can't get things flipped upside down as we so often do. Why is the Lord doing all this? Is he's doing, is he doing this because Cornelius is so devout? Because he fears the Lord? Because he gives to the Lord? Is it all of these reasons and therefore the Lord then reaches out to him? No, it is totally God's grace. None of us deserves God's favor. And yet God continually lavishes it upon us. And isn't it interesting that in this whole account, we we see such a detailed description of where Peter is, where this house is located, who the man is where, where this house is, and not only that, but what kind of work this man is involved in. And yet for all the things that we see, the biggest answer to the why question is not given. Why is Peter coming? What is Peter going to say? They don't know. And don't we find ourselves in that situation quite often? Where the Lord has not revealed to us tomorrow. The Lord hasn't revealed how this is all going to work out yet. And what is he saying to you and I? He's saying the same thing that he's telling Cornelius. Hey, trust me and walk by faith. You just take the first step. And I will meet you in every subsequent step after that. Which is exactly what happens here. So how does Cornelius respond? Look at verses 7 and 8. When the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So first we're told who he sends. Notice he doesn't just send anyone. I'm sure he had many servants. 
I'm sure, we know he had a hundred soldiers under him. But who does he send? He sends those that, that are spiritually minded. He sends a soldier that is devout. Where, where did these servants and this soldier become so spiritual? How did that happen? I would have to believe that it happened through Cornelius and through the interaction that Cornelius had with them. And notice how quickly he responds. He, he doesn't give any questioning back to the Lord as soon as the angel is gone. He summons these servants. He summons the soldier. He explains everything to them so they don't miss anything. He recognizes the importance of the event, of their journey. But, it, but it's not some sort of missionary mission or <laughs> military mission. It's more like a missionary mission that they're on. That they are going to learn more from Yahweh. But they don't know exactly what that more is. And he sends them. And he sends them right away in quick obedience. And isn't that what, how we teach our children? We want them to obey the first time. Why? Because sometimes it can be dangerous if they don't obey the first time. You tell little Mikey, hey, you shouldn't touch the stove. He's running to the stove. If Mikey is used to just not listening to you, and you tell him, no, stop, what's he going to do? He's going to run right up to the stove and touch that thing and burn his fingers. And, and so as such, what do we do as parents? We train our children to listen and obey the first time we tell them. So that when the Swansons come home on a home assignment, and I take my kids to the beach that I grew up in, Manhattan Beach, and we're getting out of the minivan, and my kids seriously have no idea what minivans are. They have no idea what traffic is. Okay, They, they grew up in, they've been living in the jungle. We get out, and I, and I say, okay, kids, you need to be careful of the cars. Yeah. Oh, look at the beach. And, and we open the door, and, and they're going to run for it. And I say, stop. And praise the Lord, all the kids stopped. If they hadn't, I think it was a Mustang. I can't remember what kind of car, but it would have wiped them out. Why, that, that's immediate obedience. That is what you and I should do with the Lord. When He commands us, when we know what He wants us to do. Think about this as well. Why didn't the angel just tell Cornelius, hey, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved? Do you think the angel knew that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah? Yes. Do you think he knew the gospel? Yes. Well, why didn't he just tell him now? It, man, it would have made things a lot quicker. Maybe Cornelius, maybe he's, he's going to get hurt. Maybe he's going to die in the next two days. Why doesn't the angel do this? Because it is not the angel's job. Just as the rocks, they could cry out, but they don't. Why? Because that is the job of you and I. He didn't, he didn't choose the angels to be the representatives for him. He didn't choose the angels to be his ambassadors. He chose us as believers, and this is what we should be all about. As we see here that, that the Lord is preparing <coughs> Cornelius to hear the gospel. And I believe in the, in the same way that Christ is preparing Peter as well, right? It's something that we've seen all along. Again, I mentioned it earlier. The fact that he's in Joppa living at a, with, with a tanner, at, at a house of a, of a tanner with, with dead animals normally would make him unclean. He wouldn't have chosen to do that. So Peter is growing. He is changing. He is expanding his understanding of who should be included 
in Christ's church. And yet he still has more to learn. And so it's through Peter that we learn this next lesson that's oh so important. That you and I need to write upon our hearts. And this lesson is obedience without love is not enough. We can't just merely come up with all of these things that we're supposed to do and not lovingly love others. And Jesus had already taught this to His disciples, to His apostles. In Matthew 15, 11, right? He says, it's not what goes into a man that defiles him. It's what comes out of a man's heart. For it's from his heart where everything comes. And this is what Peter needed to learn. And this is what you and I need to learn. Look at verses 9 to 12. As we see on the next day is they. Who's the they? Those ones that were sent by Cornelius. The two servants and the soldier. They, they were on their way and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. That's noon. That's not the normal time to go and pray. Normally it's in the morning and it's at three. But if you're really devout like Peter, you'd go and up at noon as well. But he became hungry. That's why it's noon. And was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. And he saw the sky opened up and an object like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. So what does he see here? He sees a very unlikely vision. This is not normal at all. Okay, visions aren't normal, but this vision in particular is totally unnormal. To see these kinds of animals together is not the norm. But think about this. So, so what does Peter do? He does what would have been the custom. He'd go outside the house. He'd find a ladder or some sort of staircase that went up to the roof that was a flat roof. He'd climb up there. No doubt there's an awning and, and maybe some carpet or something laid out so he could sit down that he could then pray. And as he prays, I wonder what he was praying about. Could it be he was praying about this tanner, the Simon guy, wondering, man, Lord, what is going on? What are we going to do about, about these Gentiles that are coming to faith? Are we all being called to enter into fellowship with them? And, and set aside the idea of our uncleanliness? Not being clean? Maybe he was struck, totally speculation. We're, we're not told what he's praying. But what we're told is that as he is praying, what happens? The heavens open. And this would let Peter know right away, God is doing something. And God is going to communicate something right now to you, Peter. And he would understand this. And then we see something come down. And normally we would think this would be a what? An angel. Because that's who came to Cornelius. But we don't see an angel. We don't see a bright angel or an angel coming from the Lord at all. Instead, we, we see a sheet. And in, and in the Greek, it's, it's actually the same word used for a sail. So is this a sail? Some, some more liberal commentaries would say, oh, this is something he all made up and and that it was hot up there and his mind got all messed up. And he, and he, what he was really looking at was a, was a sail on a ship. And it was passing by. And, and so he just kind of, you know, went into this weird trance. No, that isn't what the word is saying. But the sheet that came down looked something that he would like, that he would be familiar with. Like the sails that he grew up working with. And what was on that sheet? All these animals. And you'll notice that 
that there are some animals that are kosher. He could eat. And then there are some animals that are not kosher. Those are the ones that are not permitted by Jews to eat. And I'm sure those are the ones that he's zeroing in on. And it doesn't make any sense to him. And rightfully so. Because God had enacted this dietary restriction. You see, it it, it was God's plan that the nation of Israel would be set apart for Him. And they were to be set apart on the basis of the fact that they worshipped one God when many of these other nations worshipped many gods. Where they worshipped was different. How they worshipped was different. But not only that, even the way they ate was different. And all of this was to point to the fact that they are separated as unto God. And that was supposed to be a testimony, a witness to the outside world. Instead, they, they closed it in and didn't let it out. They didn't let the Lord out. <clears throat> and so then, at this point, I, I wonder if some of you are thinking, okay, I'm checking out because, you, you know what, I don't have any dietary restrictions except for what the doctor tells me and half the time I don't listen to that. Right? And so you're thinking, oh, I... I What what is this exclusivity thing that you're talking about, Pastor Jason? We're not exclusive. Really? Okay, let me just throw out some ideas and ways that, okay, if you're not exclusive when it comes to food, which you may be, because I know some, you're more vegan, you don't eat meat. And so what happens when you hang out with someone that does? Does it become such an issue that you can't even have fellowship with one another? Okay, you want something that that goes home even more? How about homeschooling? Those of you that homeschool, those of you that public school. Is that so vast that you can't come together? Is this preference, is this conviction held so tightly that it has become part of who you are? Something so important to you, to us, that it what? That it defines us. It makes us who we are and it divides us. You know, that's what was going on here. And and remember, even though these are convictions and and, and they're fine, think about Peter. This happened from the time he was little, 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 little. And it's been ingrained in him. And what is the Lord going to tell him to do? He's going to tell him, forget it. What should be the defining thing about us? It should be our love for one another. Not whether or not you drink a, a meal or sorry, you drink an alcoholic beverage, have some wine at dinner, and this person doesn't. And so obviously you could never come together. What? Not whether this person says, oh, it's perfectly fine for me to go to a casino, and this person says, oh, no. What, what, what things are going to divide? We need to let love be the thing that defines us. The love, Let love be the thing that guides us into fellowship. And this is what The Lord is teaching Peter. But not only does Peter see this unlikely vision, and remember, up to this point, this is all something that he's looking at. There hasn't been any speech yet. It's going to get even worse now because this unlikely vision turns into an unlikely command. Look at verses 13 and 14. A voice came to him, to Peter, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. That word kill in the Greek can be translated sacrifice. Meaning that there's a, there's a spiritual dimension to what the Lord is telling him to do. 
This isn't just about food, Peter. This is about worshiping me. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Could he say that any more emphatically? No, he could not. And in the Greek, when you see two negatives, a double negative like that, and did you catch that? He says, by no means, no, I have never. He's saying, no, not ever, ever, ever have I ever done this. This is not who I am. This is not what I've ever been. And an implication, he's saying, and I never will do this, Lord. But don't get too mad and too upset with Peter. I don't believe his words were, were so much defiance or rebellion or even a contradiction. I believe he looked at this as sort of a test from the Lord. Wondering, oh, okay, Lord, th- yeah, this is a test. And, and here's my answer. My answer is based upon Leviticus chapter 10. My answer is based upon Leviticus 20, Ezekiel 4. Or, Lord, I can take you to Daniel 2. I can show you all over in God's Word where it says that this is a violation of your law. So what am I to do, Lord? And look at the Lord's response. In verse 15, Again a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. Okay, Peter, I know what you think and I know how you are taught, but things have changed. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come and now the door is wide open. So stop thinking the way that you thought before and recognize that I am bringing a new covenant. And in essence, what he's saying is is, is he's revealing to him That the Old Testament dietary restrictions, they've been abolished. They served a purpose, but that that purpose wasn't permanent. The Mosaic Law wasn't permanent. The Mosaic Covenant isn't permanent. You understand that. That's what he's trying to get through to Peter. He's saying there was a time when that was needful. Why? Because I wanted a distinction between my holy people Israel and the rest of the world. But it was all with that idea until Jesus Christ came. And when Jesus Christ came, now the two could become one. And so in essence, what Jesus has done is He's broken the doors and made them wide open. Because these these things of of the law, as far as these dietary restrictions, they, they were temporary. On top of this, this is a command that the Lord gives him. So he doesn't have an option to say, oh, no. He, he had to do this. But look at God's grace in the last verse. This happened three times and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. You might be wondering, why did this happen three times? So it came down, he saw it, go through the whole, hey, are you, Eat. Nope. Sorry, Lord. I've never done that before. Oh, take it back. Let's do it again. Why, why did this happen three times? Because Peter's stubborn. Because Peter doesn't get it. And you know what? You and I are the same. How many times does God have to repeat something to you and I? When he could just wipe us. Right? He could do the same thing with Peter. Man, this is God's grace. I believe on top of that. Okay, I'm just going to keep going because this is so cool. Turn with me to John chapter 18. I I believe on top of that, Peter recognizes that when God does things in threes, he's got a point. And I believe he's pointing back to Peter. 
And this would drive deep into Peter's heart, as this should convict you and I. Because what had Peter done before? He denied the Lord three times. Look at John chapter 18, verse 17. Then the slave girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Look at 25 to 27 and we'll see the next two times. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You are not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the slaves of the high priest being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter then denied it again and immediately a rooster crowed. And if that was the end of Peter's story, we would think, okay, that's it. Rightfully so. Look, Peter, he told you you're going to deny him three times before this even happened. Why didn't you learn? Because he was slow to get it. And, and you and I are the same so often. And yet God's grace, the grace extended by Jesus Christ, is greater than our sin. Look at, and let me finish with this, John chapter 21. We'll see another time where this idea of three comes up. John 21 verses 15 to 17. As three times Jesus says something to Peter, and it is so sweet. Remember, after he denied him three times. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. And what a compassionate, gracious, loving Savior that we have. Do we not? And, and can't that be seen in Acts chapter 10? With the Lord giving him this vision three times, allowing this to come down. Extending his grace over and over and over again. And we're going to see in 10, 34 to 35, you know what, that Peter gets it. This is what he says, opening his mouth, Peter said, Acts 10, 34 to 35. I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. That's the whole point, And Peter gets it. He's just a little bit slow to get it. There are some points to ponder that I would encourage you to think about. Consider how Cornelius was a God-fearer who still had, trusted, had not trusted in Christ yet. What would a God-fearer look like today in your world? Perhaps someone that comes to church here and thinks that their coming to church is what's going to buy them their ticket to heaven instead of recognizing it is totally in Christ and Christ alone. Number two, consider how the food restrictions established in the Old Testament are no longer a boundary marker between Christ's people and the world. What kind of boundary markers still exist between believers today and the world? 
And what kind of boundary markers do we make that actually should not be those boundary markers? I think you could go a whole bunch of different ways with this question. Things we need to consider. Are we doing something that actually is giving people a stiff arm and not allowing us to welcome others into fellowship one with another? Let me close our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, for how incredible it is, Lord, that it could be written so long ago talking about people that that we don't know and yet it comes right into our day, right into our lives. We pray that You would continue to guide us, to lead us, to direct us the way that You did Peter, and that we would respond the way that Peter responds, in obedience, the way that Cornelius responds, in obedience, by faith, trusting in You alone. So go with us now as we head out from here. In Jesus' name. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. And here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951 676-2911 or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.org that's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org have a great day in the Lord and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him